0: Love one another sums up all of the one another's. In some way, shape, or form, any other of the one another's is a part of loving one another. I forgive you, I'm loving you. When I submit to you, I'm loving you. When I admonish you, I'm loving you. It's the pinnacle of the one another's. And so us concluding here is not random or haphazard, but very intentional to say they all build to loving one another. We've been working on memorizing 1 Corinthians 13 as a church, right? And how does verse 7 state this? It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Or 1 John 3, verse 10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Or you go to the lips of Jesus, and he's laying out the two great commands. The first is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything you've got. Pick up in chapter 22, verse 39, and we see on his lips, you see it on the screen, and a second is like that command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving one another is central and critical, and there's an obvious urgency here. See, loving one another shows that you are or that you are not a Christian. And John 13 goes further and says that our love for one another will be a critical part of our evangelistic witness. And so with this urgency in mind, we have to look inward and recognize in the human heart that we have a great desire to give ourselves an excuse to not love one another. What's my out clause? Whether it be something they've done to me, whether I'm too busy, whether I try like uh, Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, say, he's not my neighbor. That's what the human heart always is tending to do. And so that's what it means. My heart is doing that, and so is yours. And so the wise person this morning will listen, and they're going to ask, what exactly does God mean when he says, love one another? And the wise person will also listen and look inward and take time to assess themselves and see if they're truly loving one another or just saying that they love one another. You may ask and wonder, does love merely mean unquestioned acceptance? Does love merely mean lots of hugs and kisses? Does love merely mean the willingness To confront. Maybe like Foreigner, the 80s British American rock band, you're saying, I want to know what love is. I know you can show me. I'm not going to sing it, but that is exactly what I intend to do this morning. To take the inspired word of God, the authoritative word of God, the inerrant word of God, and from this book show you what love is and how you can love one another. And we need to note at the outset that this Bible centered, God centered view of love is radically countercultural. Because our culture abhors anyone or anything telling them what love is or how it should be expressed. We have to recognize that. I think Jonathan Lehman helpfully critiques our culture when he says we're no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love, is traded, for love is God. Instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying, tell us what you are like and how you define love, we start with our own views about love and deify them. Boy, do you see that happening in the world around you? I see that everywhere. And so we have to define and root our love and our conceptions of it and our expressions of it in the Bible. Look back at John 13, your copy of God's word with me. Verse 34 is what Luke read. It says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Super clear. 1 John 3 says it with even more clarity, perhaps. It says, this is how we know what love is. Do you want to know how? Here's how you know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you remember singing that just a second ago? This is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Just one look at your cross. And this is where we see This is where we see how love works, for you surrendered your all. As we said last week, I hope that song will carry you through the week. I'm struggling to love somebody. How do I know what love is? Go right back to what Jesus has done for us. So as we define our love in the person and the work of Jesus, this is how we know what love is we're gonna break it down into three simple points that all come back to how Jesus showed his love. We're gonna say love seeks, love reeks, and love speaks. Love seeks, love reeks, love speaks. So we start with number one, love seeks. And as we just said we would do, we define love's seeking according to Jesus. Mark 2.17, we read, "'I came not to call the righteous, but sinners.'" He said, I'm I'm seeking people, and I'm especially seeking people who aren't really interested in me and not wanting to listen to me. Or Luke 19, verse 10, we read, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He showed his love by seeking sinners. That's what Jesus does. Maybe the old hymn helps you remember this. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And his seeking of us is not like lassoing sinners, like a a rancher hog ties cattle. But no, it's, it's like he's baking warm chocolate chip cookies right as you're entering the house. And his goodness just draws you in. And you can't not go into the house and have some and enjoy the goodness that he's prepared for you. Isaiah 40 says, He gathers us like lambs and carries us close to His heart and gently leads along those who have young. This is the picture of His seeking. It says, His kindness is leading us to repentance. His gentleness is leading us to Himself, even as we bite and kick and fight against Him. You see, seeking sinners is not merely something Jesus does. It's who he is. He's a seeker. This reminds me of, of our kids. They're at the ages right now where, um, where they want to come and get in bed with us in the middle of the night. Maybe you remember that stage, or maybe it's, it's still there for you. And, uh, you know, so it's like three in the morning. They come in. I don't realize it. I wake up, and all of a sudden there's three kids in bed, and I'm being kicked out. And I'm like, goodness gracious, what's going on here? Like, this eviction notice, at least. Um, so what do I do? I try to block them. Okay, let's close their door. 3 a.m., that's no match. Man, they just unlock that sucker, and they're going right out. And then I close my door. Two closed doors, no biggie. Maybe I leave the Legos out along the path that they spilled. <laughs> that will impale a grown man and leave him you know, laid up in the hospital for months. They definitely navigate that in their sleep, no less. How does it happen? That's a great question, I still don't know. But they're constantly seeking, and no barrier I put in their way will stop them. And that's how God's seeking of you is. It's a constant seeking, a continual seeking, and no barrier you put in his way, no Legos of junk in your life you leave out, no doors you try to close can keep him from seeking you. And here's the beautiful thing. When my kids hop in bed, it doesn't matter how much stuff I left out to deter them. They never come in angry or frustrated, just excited that we're finally together, able to get under the covers and snuggle. And that's how God's seeking of you is. Not like, man, I can't believe all that stuff you left in the way, all that trail of mess you left out there. I'm so frustrated we're finally together. Doggone it, now love me. That's not him. It's a gentle, persistent, constant seeking that just draws you in and say how can it be so love amazing love divine demands my heart my life my all perhaps it's it's a newer song you come to if your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me and on and on and on and on it goes and it overwhelms and satisfies my soul this is beautiful Friend, have you considered the love of God that is constantly seeking you? Have you lost sight of it? Or maybe you've believed a distortion about it. Remember, Jesus isn't seeking you so that you'll have better self-esteem and feel better about yourself. And he's not seeking you so that you'll have a better life on earth. No, he's seeking you so that his kindness will bring you to repentance to take up your cross and to follow him. He's seeking you so that you can be reconciled to God. And then those whom God has sought will in turn seek others. We know it's easy to seek those who agree with us. We've experienced that. But who is it that God has brought into your life that you need to seek? And as you think about seeking people, let me ask you, do your words, whether spoken or typed on social media, do they gently lead people to Jesus or are they polarizing and divisive? May your seeking of others model the gentleness of Jesus-seeking. But Jesus seeking isn't only gentle, it's persistent. As I should invite you to look around the the auditorium this morning, or if you're at home, consider who you haven't seen recently. Who needs to be sought by you? And they're not here because of COVID or perhaps something else. You say, yeah, I need to reach out to them. I've not seen them in a while. I need to seek them. Who are you seeking that doesn't know Jesus? Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about that. Let me remind you as we wrap up this first point that refusing to seek others is unbiblical, it is unloving, and it is ungodly. And so even right now, as you may be recognizing, I've not sought people, and feeling kind of the weight of that, know that Jesus right now is gently, persistently seeking you to melt your heart and draw you to himself. There will be some of you who hear that and you say, but Justin, I have been seeking people. And the more I seek people, the more frustrated I get because people are difficult to chase down. And once I do chase them down, they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to be known. They want to give me the proverbial Heisman. Keep me at an arm's length. You know, we, were, we took the kids out to Arizona a couple of weeks ago and we were in one of those shops that's really good at getting you to waste your money and they've got these like bumper stickers and silly hats and all this stuff and I saw a couple that reminded me of this. This one says this, I'll bring the bad decisions. Maybe you've been seeking somebody and you just feel like that's their mantra and you're like, goodness gracious, it's exhausting to seek you because you just keep bringing bad decisions maybe this other one you recognize, says cleverly disguised as a responsible adult. So man, I just keep seeking this person and they do seem to be cleverly disguised as a responsible adult, but when I get under the hood, it's like, oh my gosh, this is exhausting. So I've been seeking, Justin, but the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. <laughs> maybe that's what your story of seeking has been like. And that, that brings us to the second point of love just doesn't seek Love reeks. Love reeks. That's point number two. What do we mean by love reeks? I like Justin, love is supposed to be a good thing, not something that smells bad. I'm confused by this. Here's what I mean by love reeks. Love continues to strive together with people, smelly people, whether it be spiritually smelly or just generally physically smelly. You continue to strive with them for growth. Because we know that the embracing relationships is messy. And so love embraces the messiness and continues to reek with people and to strive and walk with them for their growth. Now, of course, it's important that we define our love according to Jesus. And so where do we see this? Well, how about John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't show his love by sending a heat-seeking missile to blow us up. No, he rolled up his sleeves and he moved into the neighborhood. He says, I'm going to come and walk with you, literally. He didn't lob a scripture grenade down from heaven. He didn't send you a podcast with all the answers. No, he laid down his life for you. And if we're honest with ourselves, Most of the time, we're just not interested in that kind of investment and pursuit of others at that great of a cost. We just want to go as far as it's convenient. And our love does not reflect the love that's been shown to us. And the only way to get there is to take yourself deeper into the gospel. The the fire of the Christian life comes from soaking yourself in the fuel of what's been done for you. But Jesus did more than move into the neighborhood as a show of solidarity with the human race. We just said he laid down his life for you. He lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. And he died the gruesome death that we all deserved so that we could be, be brought back to God. So he doesn't merely offer a, a helping hand, a spiritual energy drink of sorts. No, he says, for those of you who will call on his name and confess, Jesus, I have not followed you with my life. I've sought my own ways, my own desires, things that I think will bring me joy. Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? I'm going to turn, I'm going to follow you. Jesus says, I'm not just going to help you, I will transform you. Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. No, he did much more than that. He died to make dead people alive. And maybe your life bumper sticker, if all things were told, said would say cleverly disguised as a Christian. And you stream the service every week, or you're, you're here as long as we're here. And you go through the motions, and you serve in children's ministry, and you put your money in the plate when it's time. But you're still following you, You're not following Jesus. And religion is just a way to get what you want. Recognize this morning, Jesus came and laid his life down for you, not to make you a better person, but to take you from being a dead person and make you a alive person. Look inward. If we love one another, it is a revealing of whether or not we are truly Christians you know in the cookhouse one of the uh one of the verses we quote from the whole bible the most is proverbs 14:4 4. proverbs 14:4 4, says this where there are no oxen the manger is clean but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox and we use it in the context of we see what our kids have wrecked and we're like well where there are no oxen guess it's okay like kind of a solace to us there right but but there's a larger spiritual point here saying Do you want the abundant crops that God intends to bring of joy and life and peace to us? Yes, we want the abundant crops. Well, then you've got to recognize that that crop is going to bring messiness with it. The manger isn't going to be clean. We all know that growth is messy. It creates new problems, right? Love embraces the messiness. And of all the the messy things you could consider in the world, it's hard to think of something that's much more messy than blood. Like, ugh, it's ick, right? It's messy. It cost Jesus his very own precious blood to come and save us and bring us back to him. So he did come. Not just move into the neighborhood and come and be and walk with us, but he fully embraced the messiness of what it would take to make you new. He could have avoided that. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have not laid down his life, and we would have died in our sins. And you too can avoid the messiness. Some of you are, some of you are not. But by avoiding the messiness of relationships, by refusing to reek with other people and strive with them for growth, you're depriving the body of Christ from what God intends for it. So lean into it. Earlier in the sermon, I, I challenged you to say, am I willing to take the time to invest in others and the risk of being known by others? I want to remind you of that and say, Biblical community is built, it is not found. It takes effort. It requires all of us rowing in the same direction, saying, I'm going to work to build this here at Parkside. It requires me doing that. It requires Each of you doing that. And we recognize Rome wasn't built in a day. And so I don't anticipate tomorrow that we're going to have, you know, this incredible building of relationships up and flourishing and just unreal. But I know that if we don't start today saying, I'm going to choose to build community here that we will never get there. This is so important to God. And we see it so clearly revealed in the scriptures. What's keeping you from that step of obedience? What is it? Confess it and turn away from it. And recognize that as I seek to build biblical community, I've got to prepare myself to walk with people, to ask myself, am I ready to reek with people? Or am I just going to selfishly get annoyed when they don't change as fast as I want them to? Now, if you're like me, you hear, them like, I don't, I don't actually know if I am ready, Justin. Maybe you feel that way. When I'm not ready, I don't think to take a step of obedience, the answer is not to not take the step of obedience. Say, God, I'm struggling. I don't really want to take the step of obedience. Help me to see how you have loved me, how you have been seeking me and reeking with me and help me to go deeper into that, to fuel me to go. So I'm gonna take a step of obedience in faith, asking God to strengthen me as I go. Love seeks, love reeks, and thirdly, love speaks. Love speaks. So we've said all along, we define love according to Jesus. And so we see Jesus coming out of the temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And the very first thing we read about him in Matthew chapter four is that from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came and he did seek us. And he did have actions that showed his love. He reeked with us, laid down his life and did countless miracles. But ultimately, he spoke, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we must speak to accurately reflect his love, to give true hope to the world. Proverbs twenty four eleven says it a little bit differently. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Speak and tell them what's coming up of the consequences of their decisions, of the path they're on, and grab them and pull them back. When we talk about love speaking, I think most of us would recognize we fall into one of two kind of general stereotypes, that either I tend to be all about the truth and light on the grace side of things, or all grace and really light on the truth. And so I might end up kind of thumping people over the head with the Bible and smashing them to pieces, and I've proclaimed the truth, but I've also run them off in the same breath. Or I come over here and I I love them and I'm graceful, I never call them out on anything and I end up being an enabler. And you probably know which of those two poles you tend to gravitate towards. And it's important to recognize both of them being fulfilled in Jesus, the only perfect man who was full of grace and truth. Right? So under love speaks, it's important to say one, speak the truth, speak the truth. Because speaking the truth brings repentance. Speaking the truth confronts sin. And you may think of speaking the truth to someone, and when you think of saying that to them, you think, they can't handle the truth. Well, they might be right, or you might be right in that, but here's the other thing I've learned. There's a lot of times that people might be able to handle the truth, they just can't handle my bad breath with it. And so it's important that I speak the truth, but not in an offensive way. It's important that I speak the truth in a way that can bring fruit. My mom used to always make fun of me and my dad. You know, we we like to golf. And um, if you ever watch golf on TV, which I get most of you probably don't much, but if you do, what you'll see is a guy, he'll take a swing, he'll hit the shot, the ball launches out, it's 200 yards away, and he starts talking to it. Get down. Get up. And my mom is in the other room just dying, laughing, like, this is incredible. We have grown men striking an inanimate object, watching it 200 yards away, and then talking to it as if it will listen to them. We are speaking the truth, just not in a way that will bring results. So consider, as I speak the truth to someone, what's a way to actually influence change? Right? We're all looking out at the world around us and we see things going down a bad trajectory and many of us are wondering if and when we may need to practice civil disobedience. And there is a way that a post on social media can be helpful to that end, but do you know it is way more effective in producing change? If we'd write to our representatives, speak in such a way that you can bring results and see fruit. And speak up for those who don't have a voice. Speak up for the unborn. Speak up for the Uyghurs in China who are being persecuted by a wicked Chinese government. If you're not familiar with the Uyghurs, just just type in Google Chinese persecution and let Google populate the rest of it for you and read about it. Speak the truth, but also speak with grace. Speak with grace. As Pastor Jared tells me, you catch more bears with honey. I'm not much of a hunter, so I can only imagine what that looks like. But the principle, I think, is self-evident that if I come in, guns clench, ready to, to strike you down, the person is going to have their walls go up, and it's not going to be a helpful way of speaking the truth. One of the questions I like to ask myself might be good for you to ask yourself as well is say, If I speak this truth to someone, or if someone were to speak this truth to me, rather, how would I feel? If someone were to speak this truth to me, how would I feel? Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak the truth to them. No, that's the wrong understanding. It doesn't mean that you even have to completely change your message. It just means consider what they're going to be feeling as you speak that truth and speak in a gracious way. Maybe some of you, like me, trend more to the truth and less to the grace side. And so you need some scripture to go to. That's what I've done. I spent time meditating this week in Proverbs 18. I'd encourage you to jot that down if you're taking notes. Proverbs 18 is a great chapter to think about, how do I have speech that's seasoned with salt? Gracious speech. Love speaks truth. Love speaks with grace. But it also speaks to gain understanding. Right? just I can imagine someone driving down a road towards a bridge that's out, right? And, and you could say to them, you knucklehead, what are you doing? Don't you know the bridge is out? Quit driving down this road so fast. Or you could say, hey, the bridge is out down there. I don't want you to drive off the cliff. Did you know it's out? Because they could come back to you and say, oh my word, thank you so much for telling me. I had no idea. And you screaming at them probably wouldn't have had that effect. But they could also come back to you and say, dude, I know it's out. I'm sprinting down there as fast as I can because I'm part of the team to help save somebody who just fell in. I'm part of the team to go help build the bridge back up. And so maybe they need to gain understanding and maybe you need to gain understanding. But the way that you speak is critical and recognizing, I don't know the whole story. So I speak in such a way as to gain understanding. Eddie and me laugh about this all the time, not not Bridges being out, but the the gaining understanding part because you guys know there could not be two brains wired more differently than mine and his. And we're constantly saying something and misunderstanding each other. And so we, we regularly say, okay, I think you just said this. Is that what you were trying to say? And then the other one of us will just just laugh because like, no, in fact, that's like 180 degrees different than what I was trying to say. Like, all right, let's step back. Let's do this again. Help me understand what you're trying to say. This happens all the time in communication. We have to speak in such a way as to gain understanding. That's what loving communication does. I wonder if I can't get just a little more personal here and maybe a little more practical into our daily lives. Emily and I had one of these this week and I share this with permission, we talked about it, Um, where we thought we were agreed on how we were gonna proceed with some car repairs. You know, me being like the, the bulldog Enneagram eight, like, let's just go get the job done. Like, yep, 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 we talked about it, okay, let's go. Go spend the money, come on. You spent how much money? Well, we talked about it. Like, There's a temptation inside of me to say, we talked about it, what's wrong with you? Why are you upset about this? You know what the reality was? I didn't listen very well. And so I have to come back and say, I thought we talked about this and I thought we were on the same page, but clearly I misunderstood. Can you help me understand what you were saying a little better? And I'll try to listen better this time. I wonder how you navigate those with your spouse or with close friends. Do you rush to, this always happens, you never listen to me. I've been telling you for years, when are you gonna learn? Or do you say, I'm sorry, I didn't listen as well as I could have. I thought I understood what you were saying. Could you explain it to me again so that I can actually understand this time? Love speaks to gain understanding. Perhaps in a, in a different context, you would say, Pastor, something you said in your sermon last week just sounded a little off. Could we grab lunch and talk about it? Because I, I just want to get some more understanding here. That's what love does. The most loving thing you can do is come to a pastor at times and say, hey, I didn't understand what you were saying. Could you clarify that for me? Or maybe in another setting, you say, I heard something from my kid's teacher or their coach and it just sounded off. I'm gonna go to them and ask if they would clarify. You can get all angry. You can go talk to all the parents. You can tell them what a terrible teacher, coach they are but that doesn't help. That's not love. Love speaks in such a way as to gain understanding. And recognizing that means I speak, but then I'm committed to listen. As the eminent theologian Will Rogers once said, never miss a good opportunity to shut up. Sometimes that's just what we need, isn't it? Just to listen. Let me remind you again as I've been saying throughout, refusing to speak truth into each other's lives is unbiblical, it is unloving, and it is ungodly. Jesus came speaking difficult truth to us in the most gracious of ways. And our love as given from him reflected to the world must show that as well. So John 13, 34 and 35, how do you know you're a Christian? If you have love for one another? And how will people who are not Christians be compelled to follow Jesus? By seeing you, seeking others, and reeking with others, and speaking truth into the lives of others. And what does it mean to love Someone. John 13, to love them as Jesus has loved you. 1 John 3, to lay down your life for them as Jesus laid down his life for you. So as we we wrap up here, I'm gonna invite you to hold up your hand, just to look at your palm, and envision it as a mirror. All right, now close your eyes. And this mirror is not showing you your physical form, it's a mirror into your soul. What's the Holy Spirit showing you inside? Who is it that you need to seek? Where is it that you need to reek? To roll up your sleeves and strive together with someone for growth? And to whom do you need to speak? Maybe you hear all those things, say, Jess, I'm not doing those. I just invite you in that reflection you see in the mirror in your mind's eye to see Jesus in the background. See him seeking you and laying down his life for you. See him on the cross, reeking with you, being patient with you, striving for your growth, playing the long game, not getting impatient, but being rich in mercy towards you. See him tenderly whispering truth to you right now, through the Holy Spirit, through his word, calling you to repent and to follow him. I'm going to give you a few minutes of of silence here. I'll pray first and just reflect on the love of Jesus poured out for you. Jesus, we love you for we have been loved. You have sought us gently, persistently, lovingly. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. And you've reeked with us. You've laid down your life despite our bad decisions, despite our hatred for you, despite our running for you. You've continued to be rich in mercy and you've spoken truth, we ask that we would speak truth as well. Help us to see your beauty, Jesus. Pray it in your name. Amen.